You're listening to Bits and Pieces on Sunrise Robot. I'm one of your hosts, Matt Duncan, out of Gelsenkirchen, Germany. And I'm Mike Edwards out of Denver, Colorado. And we thrive on the support of our listeners, so please check out sunriserobot.net slash support to see some ways you can help us out. So for episode five, um, we're going to start with a little bit of follow-up. So a few episodes back, we talked about game soundtracks, and I brought up, uh, among others, Final Fantasy XII, or the soundtrack of Final Fantasy XII. And your brother Justin actually reminded me that I still haven't uh, updated my opinion on that. So I Yeah, um, he gave a little sad face of like, oh, no update. <laughs> So um today I actually sat down and and just with Final uh, just like with Final Fantasy 10 I watched a uh, walkthrough so I I actually have the, the the music in context with the game and not just the soundtrack and yeah I got to say my my opinion didn't really change so um I I focused on the music this time because I wasn't the one playing obviously so um it's heavy on on the orchestra side, of course, and there's a lot of harmony going on with a lot of tension. So there's a lot. Of, the, the, the composer really plays a lot with dissonance. But I think what really what what's really missing for me in there is the uh, there are no real lead melodies to speak of in most of the tracks. So especially when you think of the uh, fighting music. Now the problem is with Final Fantasy XII that it was one of the, uh, the games where you don't have a battle screen like in most other Final Fantasies. So it doesn't like cut and a new music piece starts where it's always the same battle music. So yeah. yeah. That game was weird because it was like a, a massively single player RPG. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like Dot Hack or, or Fantasy Star Online. Okay, Fantasy Star Online was of course online, but I only <laughs> played it single player on my Dreamcast back then. Um, yeah, so uh, but even when you think of the battle bo- uh, of the boss battle music, um, there's just uh, th- there's there's not that lead melody that you can just hum afterwards. So. Still, I gotta say, lots of it is just not as memorable. It p- fits perfectly for the atmosphere of the game, but it's just a different kind of soundtrack. It fulfills it per- its purpose, but it's certainly not among my favorites, to be honest. Yeah, and I remember really liking the gameplay of that game, so it's kind of a shame to me that the music's more functional and not delightful. Yeah. So... uh we got some news items in this episode. Uh, apparently, the, the recording industry is finally recognizing that the world uh, with the internet is a very global place where uh, setting different rules for different regions is starting to make less and less sense. And they finally agreed to have albums released on Friday everywhere, not just in certain markets. And... I don't know, I couldn't help but kind of chuckle at this. That it's just like, oh, welcome to 2015 <laughs> recording industry. It only took you 20 years after Napster to like realize that the internet is a thing. Although you got to give it to them, in some aspects, they're they're kind of ahead of the video game industry because some games still get released on on specific different dates throughout the world. Which uh, now that even in video games, digital downloads are common, that that doesn't really make any sense anymore. They're ahead of movies, too, because movies are still weirdly region-locked and, you know, stuff comes out in Europe or other places months before. And I wonder if some of that's driven by, like, award season and, like, other things that are still prominent drivers of attention to movies at different times on the calendar. 
I think it also has to do with just that a lot of countries, Germany, for instance, still dubs all the movies. So if I want to uh, see a movie in the cinema in with the original English, uh, yeah, dub, not not dub, with the, with the original uh, <laughs> audio, uh, I have to go out of my way to find a cinema that actually plays it. So obviously they need some time to, to translate that. Although I got to give it to them that, for instance, the uh, show South Park, they actually dub it within, like, I think, two days or so so actually when you uh when they premiere the south park episodes in america two days later they actually show them in german on german tv which i think famously they make they actually make their episode the week it gets released yeah they, they don't like make 20 ahead of time and then dole them out because they're very current eventsy they, they add a lot of very up-to-date stuff in their show yeah yeah, but for, now for the for the music thing, I, I got to be honest. I never really. I, I mean, of course, I'm here in Germany, so maybe I. It, it was a different thing altogether from 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 the start. But I never really noticed that albums get released on certain days of the week. It's just oh, we've got a new album, and I want to listen to it. I don't really care about the day of the week. And I, th I think one of the arguments about. Uh, putting the global release day to to Fridays was that people or most people would get their paychecks on Fridays. And now I, I don't know, is that a uh, US specific thing or? I mean, it varies widely in the US. Some people are paid monthly, some people are paid twice a month. And like, you know, my workplace pays you the last business day of the month. So I guess there's a decent chance that'll be a Friday because if the last day of the month is Saturday or Sunday, they're going to pay you that Friday. So I, I mean, yeah, it makes a little bit of sense. You want people to know your album came out right when you have some expendable income and you're just like, yeah, I'll grab that. Yeah. But it is, I don't know, like it, it's the, the move makes sense. Like I'm not making fun of the decision. Like sure. Release things once and not have a million separate release dates. Um, but it's just kind of silly in the, in this era where the album as an event is kind of not that. I mean, certain artists are able to drum up through shenanigans some buzz about their albums for sure, but like the album as an event is kind of not what it used to be. And that's a bigger topic for another episode. Yeah. <laughs> Do you need to release albums anymore? Can you just release yeah. songs? Our first uh, non-news topic today is uh, sort of this question of making music solo versus being in a band. So what were you thinking in terms of this topic? Um, yeah, I was, I was specifically thinking about the, uh, composition side. So not, not playing live or something because I know a lot of solo artists just don't have the means to, to, to really play their music live unless you were just going the road of I'm going to press play and maybe play one keyboard part or so. So I'm, I was more into the, the, the side of just composing and making, making music. Um, for me, there, there's definitely a very, very big, um, difference between playing in a band and just making music in a band so when we're sitting there with the four of us in the rehearsal space and uh, one of us has a nice idea and he just jams it we, we're just going to loop that part for five minutes or so and then sometimes just you don't you don't really find something in there so uh, the other guys in the band just everybody can agree that whatever started that that loop or something that phrase is amazing but um yeah you just don't get an idea and sometimes it's the other way around where it just instantly clicks and we maybe just jam out the the whole song and don't have to change anything afterwards while when i'm when i'm sitting here at home it's mostly i'm sitting here have have that one phrase and then i start experimenting for maybe an hour or so because i just don't get tired and i 
when I when I'm with the band, I can't force that loop on them for an hour. So so <laughs> either we play it for five minutes and we find something, or we just drop it or just grab it uh, next time again. Yeah, I found that dynamic too. Of when when you're in a group, you kind of have this pressure to not like quote waste people's time. Yeah, and there there is this sort of like. And it's not that people are like only thinking it like they're just watching the clock the whole time, but there is this feeling of like you don't want to experiment too much with something that doesn't give you immediate pleasure um, musically or otherwise, I guess. But <laughs> and because uh, you you want to get to the good stuff fast, and you know, like say if you're writing a song and you haven't really turned your attention to the baseline yet. You're kind of figuring out the rhythm and maybe you're, you're doing some other stuff and, but you have a bass player in your band and he's like, well, I kind of want to have my part. So I'm going to, I'm going to figure something out now. And it's easy to kind of go with your first conclusion about a part. Like as a group, you're like, well, we all did this. So this is what we're doing. And when you're alone, you don't have that pressure. Um, and again, it's not a conscious thing necessarily. It's just you're in the room, you're holding your instrument, you want to play. And uh, when you're alone, you you have the freedom to be like, you know what? No bass right now. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe, you know, maybe never bass. Like you can't really pose that. Or <laughs> maybe there won't be any guitars. Like right now, I'm just thinking about what the, the best thing for this song is. And you have that freedom when you're alone to just have intense focus on one piece. Yeah, and also with that, I just thought of the situation because I was personally never in that situation that um, I was always in a band where the singer, in, in that case with Salt the Skies, that is also me, that um, the singer is always playing another instrument. So we never had that uh, session where everybody was working on that song and the singer was just sitting there and going like, yeah, I just can't <laughs> improvise any lyrics, so I'm not going to do anything. Maybe he's going to hum something because usually when we write songs, the, the lyrics and the vocals really come last. Yeah. So I know. Have you ever had that situation? Yeah. I th yeah. I mean, I've always. So this whole question um, kind of reminded me of kind of a rule of thumb that I've operated under is um, in the bands I've been in, it's either it's really clear that either I'm one of the central like songwriter sources, like I'm I'm writing the songs, I'm deciding, um, have a lot of sway over the parts, versus a band where like a lot of the bands I've drummed in, I pretty much leave the songwriting to someone else in the band, and I pretty much just try to support them and, and accompany whatever they're doing. And it's been easier for me not to try to land in the middle there. I'm either the songwriter or I'm just helping. And that's made life much easier. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. So, um, yeah, most of the time it's, it's, uh, we're, we're very, very, everybody brings their piece to the song. So when we started out, it was, um, I had some songs lying around that didn't fit with the band I was playing in before. So I, I could bring them with, there and we never changed the thing on them. So, I just showed the, showed it to them like those MIDI parts and they listened to it and they were going, yeah, nah, that sounds good. Let's just play it the way it is. And we really never did anything on that. Yeah, but usually I, I really stopped just bringing finished songs there because I want everybody to, to bring their piece in there. And I, I don't want to dictate how the bass is going to be played because our, our bassist has a very distinctive style. So I, I really can't mimic that anyway. And uh, our drummer has a very different way of drumming than me. So and in some in some songs, we actually switch uh, guitars and drums. And I, I have a d very different way of drumming than him. So I, I couldn't ever really write a drum part for him anyway. 
Yeah, and all of that is really a negotiation of personalities and styles, and like I could imagine in some situations where um, you don't trust one of the members of your band to come up with something great and you really do want to write it for them. And that could be a problem if that person, you know, either you're being a control freak or that person um, maybe, you know, is really interested in owning their part and they may not do well with that. And versus, you know, other members where you really, you really trust their nose and they're going to sniff out some really great stuff for the song and you don't want to prescribe it. You want to see what they do with it. And, uh, I think it's it's tough. Like I, I'm kind of a control freak. I like to plan the whole song. I like to own it. I, I like to decide. But I've definitely played in bands where I'm like, I hear what someone else did, and I'm like, wow, I would have never come up with that, and I love it. And so I, I've had my mind opened and to try to let go a little bit on that by interacting with other brilliant musicians. Like it's not like I'm the only guy that can write a song, but it it's definitely like. You never know till you're in the room how you're going to click with someone and if it's, you know, what the relationship is going to be like. Is it going to be I bring some clay and we both mold it together or am I going to bring a finished piece and I just want you to help me hold it? <laughs> um, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I think on those experiences, really, uh, I, I think that everybody should really, who, who plays in a band, should have some kind of solo project on the side, even if it's just for for fun and not really to release anything. Or the other way around, if you're solo, you, it's, it's always great to to sometimes cooperate with other people and ju just to get this feeling for, for what you just said. And then, yeah, and also on the other side... Um, I'm mostly also a control freak, but with Saltless Guys, when I joined them, I actually said, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be the control freak here. I want everything to be, mm -hmm. uh, kind of, everybody's being on the same page and all that. So, um, the, but that also really, uh, comes down that the, the songs that we produce are really something I, I wouldn't produce by myself, as you just said. So sometimes when I sit down and write a song, um, yeah, I actually decide no, no bass in this song or no drums in this song. And I couldn't do that in a band. So the instrumentation is way different. So if we are in a band with two guitars, you're going to bet that there are going to be two guitars playing. And yeah, I mean, I can always say, okay, I'm going to drop my guitar part and just sing in this song, but I can't tell my other guitarist to not play his instrument. On stage, <laughs> so um, it it also so what I'm trying to say is that it the 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 songs that are the results of that situation actually vary different uh, very very much. Yeah, and I like what you said about if you're in a band, you should have a solo project. And I've I've done that the entire time I've been in bands. I'm always doing my own stuff on the side, and that sort of is like a release valve because like if you're in the band and you and you're not the the central songwriter or, or in control. You, you might get some pent up like creativity where you're like, ah, I, I want to do things. And having that, that solo project lets you kind of release all that and, and do your weird thing that the band wasn't going to do or didn't fit with the band. Yeah, which happens mostly with my stuff that I'm uh, right now. So, so next to my two bands that I'm actually producing my own solo stuff just because it just doesn't fit anywhere so but i want to get it out of the system and it would be uh, would be bad would be too sad if, if that songs wouldn't be produced just because i can't perform them live with either of my bands so uh this, this also brings us to an age-old question that a lot of beginning musicians and songwriters sometimes ask is uh do i have to learn music theory to make music and i 
I mean, I, I want to let you answer first, but to the preliminary of my answer is yes and no, and I kind of have an explanation. <laughs> but yeah, I want to hear what you think. <laughs> I would also say yes to some degree. So um, going to the band context again, having some foundation in music theory and if all of all of the people in the band have that, it's just really easy to communicate ideas to them. So you can actually say, yeah, just play that chord on that beat and we're going to try this kind of effect right now. So everybody knows what's meant already. You don't have to, to, to play an example of it or you don't have to explain anything specifically. It's just easier and quicker, just the way that any kind of uh, profession has their own vocabulary. So it's it's important to... I think to, to know the vocabulary, vocabulary, not um, you, that that's that would be for me the the, the minimal uh, knowledge you should have if you're trying to play with others, and on top of that, my recommendation would be to learn some basic music theory like scales and 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 basic harmony and just just so you, I mean. A lot of people just say, yeah, if I don't know the rules that um, I, I can express myself freely and all that. But the thing is that um, to, to break the rules in a, in, a, in a pleasant way, you actually have to know the rules. So yeah. you, you know why they are there for a reason and then you can know how you break them with a good intention. That reminds me of a, a recent pseudo show interview where uh, we talked about jazz music being it's not just that it's it's breaking rules or, or free-spirited but it's really intelligent breaking of rules and um there, there's rules to how you break the rules in, in a way um no i agree with all that that having some basic vocabulary will go a long way to making you more productive and, and just faster at, at getting things done um And my, my yes and no kind of centers around, I think of music theory as kind of being descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, I don't think it is telling you what to do, but more just describing what works and what, you know, what kind of the foundations are of music. And so having that in mind will help you. But even if you don't know any of that and you end up creating a great song, you're doing things that are described by music theory. And it's not that music theory came first, it's music theory came afterwards of like, that sounds good, why does that sound good? And analyzing it. And so you may never know a single lick of music theory, but you know how to sing a good song, you have some instinct and you like what you're doing. And you're you're doing things in music theory. I've had that, you know, early on. I've no, I don't really have any formal training in music. I took piano lessons a few months early in my life, but I'm very, very self-taught. So you'd think I would have an axe to grind of like, I don't need your lessons and I don't need your... But <laughs> no, there's a huge value in that. Um, but I would have people that would listen to some of my songs and be like, oh, you did this interesting thing in terms of music theory. You know, you did like your you did a major minor shift here and your lyrics also were positive and went negative. And there was this nice like combination of, you know, whatever, like something happened. And I wasn't like, well, I don't need your music theory. <laughs> I don't care about what you're talking about, but um, it definitely, when I sit down at a piano or at a guitar, knowing thirds and fifths and knowing, you know, which chords follow really well after other chords, I can, I can sit down and, and make things quickly and experiment quickly. And I feel less, you know, I kind of think of like writers where you, you open up Microsoft Word and you're staring at a blank page and you're kind of like, you can't get started because you just got nothing. You need a prompt. You need, you need some structure. You need something on the page. And even if you're going to change everything about it, you just need something there 
to start working. And music theory is kind of like that for me. Yeah, and as we brought up last time, it's um, the thing is that I found knowing music theory and, and, and as you said, which chord goes well behind other chords, of course, something that happens will be that uh, you fall into some patterns, which we talked about, and uh, but then you, through music theory, you can actually learn how you can break those patterns easily then. So if I were to go now, oh, I want to change the key, but I can't just throw another chord in there because that sounds too jarring. You can actually learn how to smoothly transition from one key to another, which is not always that easy depending on the two keys that you're working with. And also, like, um, deliberate dissonance is also one thing that I'm... I, the songs that I write are usually very consonant the whole way through. And I, at some point when I realized that, I was going like, yeah, there's there's no real tension through dissonance anywhere there. So, um, I mean, that that for me, there are two kinds of dissonances. One, uh, the ones that just build tension through harmony, uh, which is the case for the Final Fantasy XII soundtrack that I was talking about. And the other is just sometimes you just want to go crazy so what comes to mind is some some th songs from uh battles for example um from the song tonto where uh the guitarist and keyboarder uh ian ian williams just goes crazy on on this one part where he just plays uh that that high tritone on the uh on the keyboard over a lick that just is so consonant that at some part you just go, what, what, what the hell is going on here? Why does it sound so, so bad? And then you listen back to it and it's like, no, it's, it's supposed to be there, but you, you have to know when to use it and when not to use it. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to incorporate that, but it's, it's really not that easy to, to build, to put in something that sounds so jarring without it so, sounding actually bad. This almost making me think out loud that, you know, on the air, so we're beholden to it, um, that maybe with our picks of the week, some weeks we could, pick a theme like really amazing uses of dissonance or yeah. um you know harmony or any of these other musical concepts to be like this isn't just a song we like but here's an example of something really cool about it no i totally agree though on on dissonance and and just those moments where theory helps you explain why it's interesting it's not that you needed it ahead of time to to create something but it just helps you understand what's going on. And um, just like, you know, the tools of film criticism, I think films are interesting without film critics. You don't need film critics to be in, to enjoy a film, but they they can help you think more deeply about the, the role of, you know, why is this framing of a shot or this use of lighting? Why does it enhance what's going on? Um, whether it's, you know, traditionally good lighting or intentionally, you know, like an easy example is like in most lights in our life are above us. Like it's either a lamp or in the sky or it's the sun. And so like our, we, you know, humans are used to seeing faces in a certain way. And that's why horror movies often light in crazy other directions. They light from below. They light from weird angles and like that. It's just a, a good explanation of why things can be weird looking like a dress for example <laughs> oh god so we just dated that, the episode that damn dress <laughs> <laughs> no but you're right and and another aspect that is a start of that would be a topic for another episode because that's just the the other uh, the, the other half of i think music production is the way you mix songs then so you, you've got the composition down and you you know your music theory there's also uh, a deep theory behind mixing songs and and 
so you you've got your your I, let's say sheet music for your for your band down so you've got this five part playing five parts playing and then there's 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 a deep theory behind how you mix those and how you can evoke different emotions just by mixing the same tracks in a different way so there's something maybe we can explore in another episode then yeah and it just made me think of like the weird early era of stereo recordings like in the 60s or like with some of the early Beatles records where clearly headphones weren't really a, a prominent thing <laughs> yet and so the mixes are extreme the drums are only on the left and the guitars are only on the right and the vocals are maybe in both but like yeah. today it, it makes me think of like there should be more experimentation with extreme panning and extreme yeah. directional mixes because everything's so safe now it's it's yeah. mostly in the middle and then like oh yeah your your accompanying instruments kind of split to the sides but you know your drums and your bass and your vocals better be in the middle yeah because you got to be mono safe and i don't know other a lot of examples right now come to mind where that thing happened so i i remember listening to the knot twist on on my headphones when sitting on the train and there's this one song on the uh uh Ah, uh, the album with the red cover where Neon you know Golden? which one? Yeah, yeah, that one. There's, there's this one song where the, the there's a heavy kick drum just on the left ear, and I was listening quite loudly, so most of the song sounded had a, had an appropriate volume, but the kick drum was really killing my left ear there. <laughs> and uh, was that solitaire? Maybe. Yeah, could be, could be. I, it... I'm I'm gonna pull up a sample for for later. Then. Yeah. And uh, or or another battle song that starts with a. So, so that starts with a heavy synth sound that's really bassy on the left ear and quite trebly, trebly on the right ear. And it gives you a, quite of imbalance that actually sh really shakes you up in that moment. So, um, yeah. And also, of course, a few early Animal Collective albums where they also did yeah. some extreme panning. But I mean, I, of course, Animal Collective is quite an experimental band. So you would expect it from, from them. Yeah. Okay. So talking about composition and, and changing things up. Um, I got to think about bands jumping genres and, and making album sequels that are kind of surprising and, and, and this whole thing of bridging the gap between fulfilling expectations and also bringing something fresh and, and surprising your listeners. So, um, I, I was thinking of bands that, that I've known that, that really th throughout the decades, maybe even, um, uh, switched their sounds so drastically or that, First of all, I think for me, Depeche Mode comes to mind, of course. So they, they've always got that, that synthy electronic thing. But throughout the 90s, they, they went a little bit more to the rock side. And then they, they still incorporate a lot of guitar in their songs, but then uh, ventured back into the more electronic side. And, and, and other bands like, for, for example, Guar, which started out as a, as a hardcore punk band and then uh, did some thrash metal and, also within the 90s did some quite experimental stuff that wasn't even well received with their fan base so um <laughs> I, I know for a fact that uh a lot of people regard their the album we kill everything as their worst album and, and actually like it i like a few songs on there <laughs> and uh You're so countercultural. yeah but, but a lot of things on there are really quite interesting to see what what a metal a usual metal band would would do to other genres yeah. and i mean guara an extreme example of course doing a lot of comedic stuff anyway and and being very uh yeah, offensive. So, uh, any band that come to mind for you that that or any artist that really jumped genres in a positive or a negative way? Well, I think this question is usually interesting because I think we're used to seeing it go poorly. Like you see the band that 
that has a fading relevance. Like they, they, they're in some genre that like isn't what it used to be, like pop punk or something. And they, they try to make it into a new genre and they're like, you know, like, oh, they went ska and you're like, ooh, bad move. <laughs> Why did you do that? Or, um, you know, they just, they just made a poor decision that they quickly went back from and kind of went back to their bread and butter. And so, I mean, there, there's famous historical examples like when Dylan went electric was like a big deal or, um, you brought up Guar, or I think of, you know, we talked about the No Twist earlier in this episode. The No Twist was very metal early, and now they're anything but. Like, the, they still have some, you know, distortion on their guitar sometimes, but the, everything's very neat and clean and melodic now from them, which I prefer, but I, I love seeing their discography because they, there was a weird middle ground on the album Shrink where it was like very jazzy, very, um, almost improvisational. You know, it was coming down from the hard rock and moving towards the melodic, but they had this, this wonderful middle stage. And, you know, there's some of the sampling experimental laptop pop stuff happening on it. And they eventually just went full in that direction with, you know, probably their best album that everyone should, like, if I had to nominate one would be Neon Golden, but um, I'm a big fan of Shrink. Radiohead very famously when they went to Kid A was, you know, everyone loved OK Computer. You know, it's just like such a good late 90s rock, like indie rock explosion of brilliance. Like every single song is good on it. There's so much interesting stuff happening in the compositions and the, the sounds. And then they make Kid A and everyone, you know, some people really loved it at first, but it was kind of like a big what the fuck um, from Radiohead because everyone wanted another okay computer. So how do you bridge that gap of like your audience wants more of what you just made? And you're like, no, one album is enough of that. And Muse can recreate OK Computer for the next 10 years. We don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to get a little dig on Muse. I, I don't hate Muse, but I nah. just I always like to joke about how much they apparently love OK Computer. <laughs> and also what, what, what got me thinking on this topic was our discussion last time about... Um, where I said that I never want to want to like write the same song twice, so that on a global level, it's also like I don't want to write the same album twice. So, of course, when when I'm sitting down, now, I'm gonna try to make. If I deliberately like sit down and think about making a new album, I it would be hard to plan plan anything. So it's always interesting seeing how bands in interviews talk about how they find found their new style. So. Um, and, and another video that, that came to mind just now uh, from, from the other day was the band Churches uh, pulled a prank on their, on their manager. They, uh, they, they visited in a studio and they played him some, some fake new material, which just sounded awful, like uh, completely detuned synths that were playing some, some stupid melody over and over <laughs> with, with a simple four to the floor kick drum underneath. And, and you see his face slowly going like, oh my God, this, this is going to cost us so much money. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was thinking about, yeah. I, I, I'm sure somewhere that actually happened where that wasn't fake new material, where, where some artist was so sure of going in a different direction and then, and, and bombed hard. And, uh, yeah. And just, just sitting down and thinking about what comes next with my own music. I'm just like, how, how can I do that? How can I, how can I bring something fresh and, and not, not do something completely different? But the thing is, it's more or less out of your control unless you're just going to go pick a certain genre and try to fill every expectation of that genre. Yeah. You, you, you're better off just, I think, sitting down and 
playing what comes naturally to you and then see I mean, there's always going to be that personal note in your music. So, um, I mean, going back to Depeche Mode, of course, uh, listening to the first to their first album and listening to their latest album, you're going to know that is still Depeche Mode. It's just somewhat different. Although a lot of people said, yeah, as soon as Alan Wilder left the band, everything went downhill. Yeah. But um, let's not cut it, get into this. Or another example that I found was uh, The Streets. So Mike Skinner, you put out five albums and... I, I personally love the first two albums. The third one is, yeah, I can listen to a bunch of tracks on that. And then, I don't know, the thing is he didn't really change a lot of his style, but he changed a lot of his instrumentation and a bit of his delivery. And then I got to say, I really did, couldn't get at all into his fifth album. So I don't really know what, what, what changed that, that that really shook me off that way. But for some reason, I, I couldn't really get into this. And I, to this day, I don't really know what happened. So I'm just sticking <laughs> to the first few albums then. Uh, you made me so just thinking of famous examples of genre switches that either go well or poorly. Um, Neil Young made an album in 1982 called Trans, where it was just like he just went full electronic vocoder synth pop and, um, it was received very poorly. And you're, it's almost makes me want to change my pick of the week because he has a song <laughs> on it called Transformer Man that is really good. It's a really great song. And maybe we'll just play some of it outside of Pick of the Week. But I, what I wanted to call out is maybe we could hear some of the vocoder version. But then there's a live version where he played it in a more traditional Neil Young way. You know, he's he's on guitar and there's backup singers and there's a full band and it's not electronic. And I hate to say it, but that version is way better. <laughs> so maybe we could take a second and hear like 10 seconds of each version. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think Neil Young has, has experimented with a lot of different genres in general. And I think that's, you know, to, to maybe tie a bow on this topic is genre switch, switching is, is kind of discouraged um, for artists that get famous for one kind of aesthetic. But then again, if you pull it off, it's a sign of how good of an artist you are. So it's kind of like this holy grail of like, can you span genres successfully? then you're a really good artist. Otherwise, please don't try. <laughs> <laughs> please, please stay that one-trick pony that you are. <laughs> yeah. Keep using your one weird trick. <laughs> I'm just, I, I just, what just came to mind to me was the song Temporary Secretary because I'm not a huge Paul McCartney listener at all, but for some reason I love that song. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we can move on to our actual picks of the week now. Yeah. And, uh, I'm happy to go first. Um, yeah. let you go first. Last time we used alternate. You know, we, you know, apparently it's a big deal. Which order we go in to me. <laughs> so my pick of the week this week is, uh, the song, these few presidents by the, uh, I think they're out of Cincinnati. They're out of Ohio, my home state where I grew up. Um, the, the band Y and this, uh, the, if you don't know why they, they're a very interesting combination of very quirky music, very, you know, like, in this song in particular, you might be tempted to think of they might be giants or something like that, but they, they have a, 
I, I think the most interesting thing about them is their lyrics, which, you know, is also something you might say about They Might Be Giants, but um, there's a weird combination of silly or funny or quirky with dead serious. And I, I think this song is, is very dead serious. It's, it's kind of a poetry about a, an awful relationship that's kind of lived past its prime or, or died apparently and kind of analyzing the, the different dimensions of its horribleness and yet kind of lamenting and, and I think my favorite line is a uh, yours is a funeral I would fly to from anywhere. And, uh, I don't know, maybe we can just hear some of it, you know, some of the, I think I would call out the, there's this bright, peppy, almost quirky verse part, you know, it's like a very poppy sound, and then it, it goes straight into the gutter for the chorus, there's tons of low end, and the drums get all rumbly, and um, I just love that that combination there. So let's hear a little bit of these few presidents. Yeah, so I don't know if there's that much else to say about this song, but did you get a chance to listen? Uh, yeah, and I think you nailed the description perfectly. So that that's just what I was thinking of. I, I never heard the song before, so I put it on. And my first my first uh, word that came to mind was also quirky. And I thought, yeah, that, that's, that's, that sounds fun. And I didn't really listen for the lyrics the first time around. I was more listening for the chord progression, which is uh, interesting in and of itself. So the, the verse chord progression really changes things up. So there, there's not that instantly noticeable pattern in there which i always find interesting in music yeah and then the, the chorus dropped and it was like wow this this is something completely different and then i started uh yeah reading the lyrics in parallel and as you said it's i mean i read that some some people take it really quite literally with uh the the, uh, the narrator actually killing the person that's being addressed <laughs> in the song so um and i understand why why you would take it that way so um I'm I'm definitely going to to dive more into to why because I've I've never heard of them before so yeah you you excited me for that band so I'm <laughs> going to going to listen to more of that. Well, excellent. So what what, what was yours? Um, yeah, my pick of the week is um, from this uh, from the song "Pregnant Pause" by the band Wild Beasts and specifically that one part in the middle. So um, I've been listening to that band for for a few months now and I always come back to that one song for that specific part in the middle so um i i think instead of just describing it i'm just going to play that that little snippet right here Yeah, so the, the, the part I, I'm talking about is, is that, that vibrato vocal where he goes, um, 
when all the other words come out wrong and th the way he stresses that word and builds that vibrato is it, it just always come back to that that part and it, it works so perfectly with, with the harmony yeah, and also afterwards that line where he goes like um the payload of bad words so so he goes with that the word bad is actually quite dissonant to the rest of the harmony and th that's one of the cases where you were just talking about um using using dissonance deliberately to to work with the song or as you just said where maybe maybe he did it uh, out of instinct maybe he did it deliberately i, I would actually say that uh, listening to to the rest of the band stuff i actually would would say i would bet money on that he really put the, some deliberate stress on that and not bad in, in bad word putting it in, the, in this dissonant note and it's just an amazing track from from that yeah. perspective and uh, so when I listen to this, it's a very pleasant song. His, I think his voice is amazingly clean and smooth. Like that just struck me immediately and carried throughout the song. And uh, a way I'd almost describe it is like it's as smooth as the vocoded voices in Daft Punk can be sometimes, <laughs> but he's yeah. not vocoded. Yeah. Um, and I was just kind of astonished at like, yeah, you could almost drop this in place into some of the more down tempo Daft Punk songs <laughs> and you, you wouldn't need to do anything to his voice and it would work there. And, uh, um, yeah, just that was the thing that struck me the most as compelling. And I mean, all the music was good too. And then the dynamic and some of the other elements you described, but, um, maybe it's the classic listener thing of like, I latched onto the voice immediately and focused on that. Yeah, and another thing to say about that band that with that song I picked a song where where only um, the the yeah I would say the main singer of that band and also bassist sings the song, but they also have a second singer, so it's not really a thing of background vocals and 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 main vocals. They actually exchange uh, the main vocals throughout different songs, and their other vocalist has a very amazing baritone voice. So um, I actually covered one of their songs, and it, it, it really tried hard to to mimic that 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 deep low baritone and the other singer going an octave above it with with that smooth voice, and it's really hard to pull off. And he also has an amazing vibrato like ju not just that part that i was mentioning but also just just uh when he's holding on to other notes that that slight vibrato that i i really wish i could pull that off so <laughs> it's, it's songs that i really like to to sing along to just to uh to, to learn so i mean of course you can learn the best from things that already sound great so i always pick songs to to improve my own my own voice and singing by uh trying to mimic that it's as perfectly as possible absolutely so with that, I think we've reached the end of our topics for this bits and pieces. Uh, it flew by so fast. Um, you can find me online. I'm Mike Edwards out of Denver, Colorado. I'm at Medwards Music on Twitter or pseudomichael.com. And how about yourself, Matt? And you can find me on Twitter at Echolox, which is E-C-H-O-L-O-X. All right. And uh, you can find these show notes at sunriserobot.net slash bits and pieces slash five. And also a shout out to our Patreon supporter, Bruce Edwards. Thank you so much. Uh, we thrive on the support of our listeners. And uh, if you'd like to find out how you can support the network, you can head to sunriserobot.net slash support. Also, rate us on iTunes. Uh, apparently, uh, iTunes is still an important avenue, um, even if you don't listen through iTunes. Um, your ratings and reviews uh, will help us out. And until next time, enjoy. Enjoy.